This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations about difficult subjects. Tonight, I'm going to be talking with Kathy Plord about the role of healthcare providers in violence prevention. Kathy Plord is the founder and chief playwright for Adverb, a program of the Westbrook College of Health Professions at the University of New England. Adverb offers theater that addresses social and public health issues like eating disorders, teen dating violence, and sexual assault. Kathy Plord is Adverb's director and an adjunct assistant professor of integrated health sciences. She's had programs touring since 2000 in 35 states and internationally. And she's presented about theater and health and wellness education nationally and internationally. Welcome to Safe Space, Kathy. Thank you, Anne. Very, very nice to be here. I feel like Adverb does um, theater, the version of what you do for radio. So difficult dialogues. I feel the same. When I was reading your stuff, your website, I thought, well, we are very much kindred. Mm, Indeed. It's wonderful. So I know your, your current play is called Major Medical Breakthrough. And I'd love to have you tell me, what breakthrough are we talking about? We are talking very specifically about the breakthrough that could happen, could happen, if the healthcare sector, doctors, nurses, dietitians, therapists, people who sit at the front desk uh, and schedule your appointments, if they had some role in addressing violence and, and domestic abuse. abuse. Um, it's epidemic, this issue, as you know. Um, you've got the stats. Do you want to hear some give of me the stats? The, give me some stats. All right. Well, they're ugly, so um, just so you know. Uh, it looks like approximately 35% of emergency room visits, 50% of all acute injuries, 21% of all injuries in women requiring urgent surgery, all of it is a result of partner violence. Um, so thir- basically a third of all emergency room visits for women mm-hmm. are because someone that they care about has hurt them physically. Mm-hmm. And it's important to say that 85% of the victims are women, but 15% are men. And that is not a small number. And I think sometimes men get left out of the conversation. And sometimes that's controversial to say. But uh, how to make people invisible, I think women understand that. So let's not make men invisible in that uh, abuse and survival rate as well. So so we, we're talking, these statistics have to do with people coming to emergency rooms. So right there we have a healthcare context. And... I've worked in emergency rooms, and I can tell you for a fact that we did not ask everybody mm-hmm. about assault. If, if the obvious ones who came in with a, a gash across the face or a broken arm, or you know, we asked, but we did not screen routinely, and we were not. I was a, a trainee at the time. We were not told to. Yeah. And so, when you describe it as a, you know, it would be a breakthrough if if healthcare providers did ask. Um, I'd love to hear more about. How come that's not happening? Well, first of all, it's information. Um, there really needs to be policy, protocol, and procedure at every level. That's one of the actions of this program and this performance. And when we first screened it at a hospital in an emergency room, um, Grand Rounds, um, virtually no one in the room knew what the um, policies, protocols, and procedures were. So if the people who are supposed to be doing the work don't even know. So there's there's information, and that's that's constant. But you'd be surprised at the number of people that will see a black eye and then stop seeing it and do that intentionally because they are not going to ask. Um, 
it's important to recognize that the barriers that most people have around asking about violence or things that might be unhealthy or uncomfortable, doctors are people too. And those same barriers are there. Um, like basic things like politeness and not wanting to be intrusive, for not instance. Not my business. Or um, some of the uglier side of that, which would be assumptions. You know, if uh, she didn't have such a problem with addiction, this wouldn't be a problem. Or, you know, it's those people of that class or that race or that... Um, one of the beautiful, horrible things that happened when we first screened the the piece, uh, an emergency room doc that I had been working with, um, saw in the script a term called crazy making. And not long after uh, she reviewed the script and gave me some feedback, she told us during this grand rounds that um, the wife of a prominent physician had come in for emergency room treatment. And she quickly identified crazy making. She saw it. And she said, you know, I don't know if I would have gotten there. Maybe I would. Maybe I wouldn't have. But I got there right away. I'm not actually understanding when you say crazy making. What part is crazy making? Crazy making is um, a very special kind of abuse. It's the kind of abuse where um, people control and manipulate what's going on. I love you. I hate you. I can't live without you. Um, so that mind game, manipulation, lies, tall tales, um, you know, when someone constantly feels like they have to walk around on eggshells, is De uh, Jekyll or Hyde home tonight, you know, that kind of thing. Crazy making. I see. So the, the emergency room person f recognized this in her patient. Yeah. Who happened to be married to a prominent physician. Yes. 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 And so, and that's a much harder thing to detect, potentially, if one's not trained to look for that. Um, well, one's not necessarily trained to look for it. Um, most people say it might have been mentioned in med school. Um, how many hours does an advocate put into training or volunteer uh, a hotline worker? Um, it's hours and hours and hours. And so, you know, mentioning it in med school is not going to do it. But if you take a look at what the um, ACE study, the uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, shows us, it is profound what the impact of violence, abuse, and trauma can have on a body. And this is why the healthcare sector is so important, because they are the ones that can detect it sooner than later and be a part of the prevention. So let's talk about the ACE study, because yes. I, don't, I don't know how publicly known that study is, and I think it's central to our understanding. Um, so tell me a little bit about what these adverse childhood events are and what we know about the long-term mm -hmm. consequences of them. Well, we bring up the ACE study in the play uh, simply because people need information. And when they have the facts, they have the science, they're much more likely to comply as a provider with, with the desire to, to make this change, to start screening. So the Adverse Childhood Experiences study uh, came out of a study that the CDC and Kaiser Permanente have been doing. Uh, the last number I heard, it was approximately 18,000 people had taken the study. These are Kaiser um, healthcare coverages. And uh, as they did histories, they recognized that the n higher the number of adverse childhood experiences, violence, abuse, trauma, neglect, um, death, things like that, the higher the correlation of problems in their health. So while there are many people that can survive and, th and find a way to thrive and become the best advocates in the world, you know, being subjected to violence or abuse is not uh, a death sentence or a, a critical disease sentence. There's so much at the root of people's illnesses 
that come from these dramas. Um, right. it's, it's My understanding is that they give you a score, sort of the number mm-hmm. of things that you had, and even yeah. even things like divorce is one mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And if your scores, you know, is higher, sort of four to eight, something like that, right. the risk of significant physical illness, mm-hmm. physical disease is much, mm-hmm. much higher. And as a doc, if someone comes in and it's chronic um, headaches, chronic stomach stuff, chronic stuff you can't pinpoint, um, chronic, why don't you stop smoking? Well, smoking happens to be my coping mechanism, <laughs> you know, and, and that's at the root. And if you're not addressing the root, then you're, you're dealing with symptoms, not, not causes. Um, with situations like um, diabetes, um, which is tied to obesity issues, you know, very often someone who has been dealing with an issue, you know, puts on weight because it's a way to, to insulate against what they don't want. And you know, that's not a, a, you know, all people who are dealing with obesity are dealing with uh, abuse, not necessarily. But a lot of times when people have had an eating disorder, Approximately 25% of people who have an eating disorder happen to have had a history with a sexual trauma. So I thought it was higher. It might be higher. Last number I saw was 25%, but it doesn't matter. It's up there. Mm-hmm. It's huge. And that doesn't mean that you need to look at somebody who is struggling with eating and say, oh, I know what happened here. You don't. You don't know what happened here. But at the root of so many difficult things... Um, and as a doc, if you know your patient has suffered, uh, is suffering with depression, and you can say affirmatively they have been dealing with um, either an unresolved or a current or a threatening situation now, um, and they have depression, actually the suicidality rate is higher. So it's it's needs and requires higher attention on your part as the provider. Um, I wonder if another barrier to doctor screening is the um, assumption on the part of the doctor that they would know somehow. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know that I have felt that way at times mm-hmm. and, and have been humbled to be wrong. I feeling like I have a really good relationship with this person. Surely mm-hmm. they would have told me or I would mm-hmm. know by now. And there's this idea that um, we don't really need to ask that there would be these other ways that we would know. Well, and people who are in an abusive situation are pretty good at coping and dealing. And, you know, why would they make themselves necessarily more vulnerable? Um, There are a million reasons why someone can't go there. And it takes an average of about seven times of someone inquiring about an abuse situation before someone might actually admit it. So... So you have to ask and ask and ask. Mm-hmm. So it can't, you can't just do it on your initial patient intake no. and then think that you've crossed off that box. Well, and something might have happened between uh, this physical and next. You don't know. Right. So that's very important to know. So you, it's not just screening the first time that you're no. recommending. No. And we take a look at the linkage issues around um, uh, teen violence, and we take a look at elder abuse. It's huge. Um, it's such a, a giant. So you think, oh, an older person, they're not going to be, you know, they're not in a relationship anymore. It's not really a problem. Well, um, they might actually be dealing with a domestic situation or a caregiver situation. That has got to be addressed. And the, the numbers on that I don't have, but I know are frightening. Right. So you're saying you need to ask through the whole lifespan mm-hmm. about the possibility of intimate partner yeah. violence or abuse. And dogs have power. 
um, they have a lot of power. Uh, I was approached by a woman once who came to see the show, and she said to me, it was only because my doctor asked me that I figured it out, that I could see it, began to see it. And she said, oh, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. And then realized after time that, in fact, that was what was going on. And it wasn't like he was, or she, I don't know the gender of the doctor, but was you know putting ideas in their head. It was just something that he or she knew and could see it. And until someone is ready, you just have to trust that they're not going to tell you until they're ready. But the other barrier is what if they say yes? That's Let's talk about that one. Yeah. Right. So what am I supposed to do? Yes. Well, fix it. <laughs> Wave your magic wand. That's what doctors like to believe they can do. Take two. Call me in the morning. Uh, yeah, it's not your job. And it's something that I think is really hard for people in a helping profession to address, adjust to, I can't fix it. Um, and you know, you might not be the best person to fix it. Uh, in fact, the agencies, the sexual assault and the domestic violence agencies are good at this and they're very good at helping people figure out what's going on and help people talk through how they feel about it and help people talk through, um, what their risks are and what the danger is and what they want. It's, you know, there's a lot of motivational interviewing that goes on in that kind of a hotline situation. And, um, you know, hotlines are free. You don't have to call on behalf of yourself. And actually, last time we performed this locally, uh, we did it for the College of Osteopathic Medicine students here at the University of New England. And uh, we had the uh, advocate role play with uh, one of their teaching docs, uh, a hotline call. What do I, I have a patient I'm worried about this. I'm not really sure. What do I say? What do I not say? What if they don't? And so that was just a really lovely gift. That So the doctor calls the hotline to get mm-hmm. help from the hotline about how to do their yeah, job. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. That never occurred to me. Well, it's not about how to do their job. I'd like to correct that. I think it's more about how to be of use to this person, how to best support them. And it's not that they can, they can fix it. And it's going to be very frustrating when they don't leave. Um, w- there's a lot that we don't see. Uh, you don't see the children. You know, you see a doctor, as a doctor or a provider, you see them episodically. You don't see what they have to live through every day. Uh, that It's getting children to work. Um, that's dealing with finances. It's dealing w- with family expectations. It's dealing with uh, really complicated psychological and literal, very difficult logistics. And, you know, frankly, when someone leaves a violent relationship, what we know to be true is that that is the time they are in most danger. So you really don't want to assume too much um, and trust. You really have to trust that the survivor, the victim, is the one who really knows how to manage what they need to do. And so for doctors who are trained to fix things, mm-hmm. it seems like what part of what the important shift in our thinking then is that part of how I could be helpful is not by helping them leave necessarily, but getting them the resources, mm-hmm. the people who are really skilled at this. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are what are other ways that a doctor can feel like they've been successful if the person doesn't leave? What are the What are the other ways that the doctor can be useful within that frame? If the if the woman mm. isn't able to st- to leave for whatever important reasons, mm-hmm. are there other ways that the doctor can feel good? Mm-hmm. about their contribution? Mm-hmm. Well, I think they need to be in dialogue with their patient. Um, what is it that I can do for you? What What will be most helpful? 
um, is there something, um, like if you need an appointment, you can call for one. Or a doctor can be helpful by not firing their patient for missing appointments because, oh, lo and behold, somebody has um, taken the keys. And that was done intentionally so that somebody could not get there. Or somebody is in the car waiting. Or somebody's in the room. And so a doctor um, can really draw from his or her medical team to do the right thing here. And a lot of times abusers show up in the office with the survivor, with that injury, and need to control the situation and make sure things don't, the story gets told right. And so, you know, you have got to, this is where policy protocol procedure comes into place, you've got to find a time to speak to that person alone. So when you talk about policy protocol and procedure, what are you talking about when you use those words? Um, so I work the front desk. I'm really worried that this person who keeps rescheduling appointments actually has something going on at home. What do I do? The office policies for doing what what's in there. What happens if a stalker or uh, an angry um, partner shows up? What do you do there? Um, what if the office doesn't have a policy? Well, that's a problem, isn't it? That's the point here. <laughs> that's what I want to change. And I, I'm not alone in wanting to change this. This is not, you know, the Kathy Plourd vision. This is, this is something that um, so many healthcare providers are so dedicated to in the world. So I really want to point out that this is not a major failing on so many people's parts. Uh, there are amazing providers in the state who ask. Um, I have to say, uh, I was asked for the first time. Um, new doctor uh, just a month ago, and it was the first time. I'm not going to say how old I am, but um, come on now. Yeah. Very, Did very you want to just stand up and embrace that doctor? I said, thank you for asking me. Yeah. Um, and so for those who are afraid, you know, people will thank you. Mm-hmm. Because you, it, you do not wish to believe as a victim that you have chosen somebody who would treat you this way. You don't want to believe that you have somehow found yourself in a life that you never wanted. And you don't, you're, you're pretty sure it's your fault. And that's a part of the, the, the challenge and of living with someone who's abusive and difficult is they're pretty good at making sure you know that you're the one that has the problem. So help me make the link there. So how does asking about it help with that? How does asking about it help with that is um, validating rea- reality. Um, sometimes just letting somebody know, you know, it's not okay. Are you, you're not, you're not, what happened? So um, I was talking actually today to uh, Julie Shermer about um, interviewing techniques. And she said one of the things that they were uh, putting into their trainings over here at Tufts was a, a questioning on um, satisfaction in their marriages or in their relationships. And that's a question that sort of, so like pulling the string in a sweater, you can get a lot more. Oh, so you're not all that satisfied. Okay, so what would you, um, how, how do you deal with disagreements? How do you deal with arguments? And so those those things can come out in in ways that, um, are you being abused at home? <laughs> Just is not going to work. So is, are there ways that you encourage people to ask the question that are more thoughtful than others? Well, I would say practice the question on people you work with. I think that the question is uh, something I can prescribe. And I know that there are some questions that have um, validity rates. Um, Have you ever been hurt? Um, You or someone in your home been hurt? Um, 
or felt unsafe. And there's a, there's another one that's escaping me at the moment. But uh, a clinical um, prescription of how you need to say this is not going to necessarily work because that might not work for you. It might not work for the relationship you have with your patient. And so figuring it out and just being honest you know, I ask all of my patients. That's why I'm asking you. And I'm, or you're saying, why did I ask? Uh, I'm concerned about your health. And I know sometimes this is an issue for people. Or a lot of my patients have this issue because it's epidemic in this world. And, you know, if you are experiencing that, I want you to know you're not alone. And I like to see if there's something that we're doing in our, our treatment and our health care plan uh, for you um, actually works. So... Part of what I notice about the ways you're asking those questions are they're they're normalizing it because mm-hmm. what we're saying here is that it can be shaming to even be asked. Yeah. Because that the person might think, oh, well, what are you noticing about me that's mm-hmm. making you ask the question? Mm-hmm. So there's so much shame yeah. laced through this subject. Yeah. And what's so tragic is that uh, depending on which study you look at, only 10 to 19 percent of doctors report asking their patients about their experience. Um. I don't have time. I can't code for that. What if they say yes? Those, I'm sorry, those are not good excuses. You do have time. And if it's at the root of what is wrong with your patient, then it's kind of a no-brainer. And um, to be compassionate in that space, it's hard. It's very hard. And that is respected. It's not easy. And all of the docs that I talk to who have done it for a while have said they get better at it. It just becomes routine. So you just you just figure out how to deal with it. Mm. Um, yeah. I want to ask you now about the links between intimate partner violence or what we what other people call domestic violence and sexual assault, because I know that those links are far more uh, powerful and pervasive than we may know and think about. I'd mm. love to hear you talk about that. You have a thing for cheery statistics, don't you, Anne? Um, the last number I saw was 64% of all... Uh, Sexual assaults that were committed um, were done by someone that the person was in an intimate relationship with. Uh, I think if you take it out to um, adolescence, it's a little higher. Um, Yeah, 64%. And so when, where there's sexual assault, there might be domestic violence. Where there's domestic violence, there might be sexual assault. And... Again, these have really specific AMA prescribed procedures and really good information for your for your docs on how do you do this. They're great tools out there, um, and it's not something that you can solve in a minute. But you know what? Call the hotline, and Amy uh, Thomas over there will help you out. What is the number for the hotline? I don't remember, but it's in the phone book. And if you, um, what's the name of the hotline? If uh, you're sexual at? Assault Response Services. Of, of Southern Maine is the local one here, and Family Crisis Services is the domestic violence hotline, and they'll talk about both issues. And if they feel like, um, you know, you, you might find better help at the other one, I'm sure they'll send you to the other one. But it's anonymous, it's confidential, it's important. And um, you know, I have friends who have called on behalf of, um, you know, a girlfriend who is dealing with issues. Um, an old roommate of mine, I think he had four girlfriends in a row who had a sexual trauma, um, a rape in their history. And he said, you know, I don't stand a chance here. We get into a certain point in our relationship and we have to unpack this. And it's really hard. It's hard for them. It's hard for me. And so 
you know, abuse rates are about even until about age eight or so. Then it, the gender breaks starts to happen. But the impact of violence on your friends, your families, your sisters, your mothers, your brothers, you know, uh, men who are in homosexual relationships, gay men experience domestic violence at about the same rate as heterosexual women. It's so powerful because I've been doing this series, as you know, on domestic violence and male violence against women. And so often when I think about domestic violence, I, it doesn't come to mind immediately to think that the, if it is a woman or, or if it's mm-hmm. a man, uh, that, that sexual assault may be part of the violence that they're enduring. Mm-hmm. And it, that's one of the things that Major Medical Breakthrough really highlights is helping people yeah. put that on their screen. So we have time for one more question, Kathy, and I'd like oh, to ask you, yes. um, there's so many ways to try to address this problem. This problem is epidemic, as you've said, mm-hmm. and you have picked theater yes. as your tool, as your way. Mm-hmm. And, and the I'd microphone. Lo- <laughs> I'd love to hear about that choice, about what it is you love about theater, mm-hmm. what it is about theater that makes it effective and compelling in trying to reach people to, to help change their behavior? Well, I think you can embed a lot of truth in theater and you can deliver it in a way that people remember it because it's an affective experience. It's not a lecture. It's not yet another piece of media that is bombarding your eyeballs. Um, Film and media is very important. It's part of our world. But all the more reason that actually theater stands out a little more because you are breathing and thinking and considering the questions that a character is asking um, him or herself or of each other or of you as an audience member. And I understand when you do these plays, you go into a community and you have a facilitated discussion afterwards mm-hmm. and you have trained professionals who work with kind of disclosures around abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to hear about this or that whole part of your yeah. program. The, the play is at the kernel. It is not the point. The play is the reason for gathering resources and, and making people come. It's a, a thing to gather around, a fire, a meal, <laughs> an experience that we can share. And the uh, preparation of lining up one's resources prior to the show, the preparation that we coach people through of understanding what is going to be the best experience for this particular audience, this particular community at this particular time. What do they need? Um, We're descriptive, not prescriptive in, in how to do that. And then, you know, the play goes away. So what? We really want to leave a community stronger. We actually just did the show up in uh, Dexter, and it was intense. Uh, That was the uh, location of the triple homicide last summer at the Lake family. Um, And the community needed to heal, and it was great to have them come out. It's wonderful to hear about the great work you're doing, Kathy. If someone wants to bring Adver Productions to their community, Mm -hmm. how can they reach you? Well, online is probably the easiest way. Uh, Our website is uh, UNE's website slash adverb, A-D-D, new word, verb. Um, So UNE.edu slash adverb. Great. And the phone number, I understand, if they ask to reach you, is 221-4000. Yes, that would be the UNE switchboard. So uh, University of New England, Adverb Productions, we would love to come to your community. Thanks for having us here. Thank you, Kathy. This is Dr. Anne. I've been talking to Kathy Plord of Adverb Productions about major medical breakthrough, their current play. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to the website 
at safespaceradio.com. You can subscribe there to get a weekly link uh, to that week's topic. You can also uh, like us on Facebook, and you can download the podcast from iTunes if you go into the store uh, and click on podcast. Coming up next is The Watchdog. <laughs> 